Welcome. This is podcast number one. Its title is How Mark Writes. How Mark Writes. It's the first of a series of podcasts that are designed to go along with and to support uh, a Zoom Bible study that we're going to be sharing together here at St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows in Tacoma, Washington this spring after Easter 2021. This, the, the online study that we're sharing together is the, it's called The Reign of the Gathering God. We're studying the Gospel of Mark. Part of the reason for that is that this is the year of Mark. And what I mean by that is that, as you may be well aware, um, the, the, the scriptures that we read in church, are the lectionary cycles as they are called, they're designed to follow, each year follows one particular gospel. This is the year that focuses on the Gospel of Mark. So this is an ideal time for us to spend time in the whole breadth of the Gospel of Mark. That's one reason for it. Um, another thing that's going on at St. Mark's right now is that we've just begun 18 months of study together around racism and anti-racism. Uh, Mark's Gospel is not about racism, per se, but it is about boundaries. And so I think it's going to offer us some opportunities to think about and to reflect on the dynamics that we are wrestling with around racism and anti-racism. At least we're going to keep our eyes open for those dynamics. That's not the main focus of this study, but it's one of the things we're, we'll be watching for. My name is Mark Gravrock. That's part of the reason I like the Gospel of Mark. It has my name on it. I have spent my... Uh, my my, my work life as a parish pastor and as a college teacher, back and forth between those two. Um, and in both of those roles, as parish pastor and as college teacher, one of the things that I've come to love is the, the intersection point where the living Word of God meets real human lives. That's been a theme of mine throughout my ministry. These podcasts uh, there's, there will be a series of them, one to go along with each of the Sunday classes that we'll share together. They are optional, uh, so not all of you will be listening to these, or you may listen to some and not to others. They're designed for those who want to dig a little deeper into some of the themes that are going on in our study of Mark. There will necessarily be some overlap between the podcast and our sharing together. These podcasts, of course, are by definition monologues, so you're only going to hear my voice. And the part of the part of the hope then is that I can do the background material here, and then as we gather together on Zoom, that those sessions can be far more collaborative than these can be. In each of these podcasts, I'm going to be doing two things. One will be to overview the section of Mark that we're going to be studying on Sunday. So that for this first one, that will be Mark 1, 1 through 3, 6. So just a little more than two chapters. So that's part of what we'll do each time. The other thing that we're going to do is dig deeper into one background theme for the Gospel of Mark. And this time my theme is How Mark Writes. Before we dig into How Mark Writes, let me share a little with you about my own conviction and approach to Scripture. Uh, I am convinced that Scripture is um, very much parallel to Jesus in, in a way, that just as Jesus is 
in basic in common Christian tradition and understanding, Jesus is divine and human. He's fully divine as God's Son, and he's fully a human being. How that works, we don't exactly understand, but it's part of our confession of Jesus. I'm convinced that the scripture is similar, that it is divine. It is God's word. We call it the word of God, and it's also very human. Um, as something divine, as the word of God, that is a faith statement. It's a conclusion that we come to living in the community of faith and reading these scriptures. It's not provable. There's nothing, you can't sit down with the scripture and say, well, look, there, it's obviously God's word. That to call it the word of God really has more to do with, with how we encounter God in the very process of reading and hearing and sharing scripture and trusting that encounter. It's a marvelous element of the life of faith. As a human thing, the scripture, it is a collection of human writings by individuals and communities written over thousands of years. And as you look at each one, if you read, for example, the letters of Paul, you can see Paul's personality writ large and over those pages. You get a clear feel for who Paul is and how he thinks and what his attitudes are and what world he lives in and what his genius is and what his limitations are, what his worldview. You can see that stuff especially clearly in someone like Paul, but it's true of all of Scripture. It's a very human thing. How do we approach something that's both divine and human? Well, insofar as the Bible is the Word of God, we approach it with reverent, trustful listening, expecting encounter with God and open for how God will open us and how God will do vital business with us. Insofar as it's a human document or a collection of human documents, it's fair to use any tools that are available to us in the study of literature. Um, to ask any kind of question and probe it in any particular way. I find that really freeing to be able to study it through all kinds of different lenses. And each lens opens up different things for me. And so every time I approach Mark, I learn something more from the particular approach and from hearing from other people, including you. I'm more and more marveling at uh, if, if it really was God's intent to get through to us through texts, through writings, what a risk God is taking. God doesn't dictate this stuff. You can tell this isn't dictation because all the four Gospels would come out identical if that were the case. But they're very different, and they have very different angles and different points of view. But God is entrusting this word through human writers, through human beings who pull it together and shape it. I find that marvelous, and I think there's a certain amount of play in that, that God is willing to play in human endeavor to create this word that will be the place where we encounter the presence of God. thing actually in the history of the Christian church. For most of the Christian centuries, Mark was neglected, especially in the Western church, and by that I mean uh, Western Europe and America, the Roman Catholic Church and its children, the Protestant churches. 
Uh, it was in most of those churches for most of those centuries, the primary gospel that would be read on a Sunday would be the gospel of Matthew. That was taken as primary. And then filled in with Luke's parables and the beautiful stuff that's in the gospel of John. Mark hardly got any press at all because Mark's the shortest and the simplest and almost everything that's in Mark is in one of the other Gospels, so why bother? Mark was just ignored. Until around the time I was born, about the middle of the last century, in the, about the 1950s, uh, Mark began to be rediscovered. And where so many had just seen him as simple and even crude, um, it turns out more and more that Mark that is a genius as a writer, that he's doing really careful, thoughtful stuff in a very, very simple way. I love this gospel. It's my favorite. Who is Mark, by the way? We don't know. Truth is, none of the gospels has the name of the writer on it or in it. They have titles that got added later, but those are simply traditional titles. We don't know who wrote the gospel of Mark. Ancient Christian tradition and this is uh, encapsulated in the early Christian um, historian Eusebius, um, re re assumes that this is written by John Mark. Uh, so John has two different names. He shows up in the, in the book of Acts as John Mark. He is a cousin of Barnabas. He travels with Paul and Barnabas for one of their missions, but for some reason Mark bailed out of that mission, and Paul was not very happy with him. It took some time before Paul and Mark were reconciled later. And Mark, the same Mark, apparently traveled with Peter. Uh, Peter calls him my son Mark at one point. And by tradition, he'd be, he's known as Peter's interpreter or Peter's mouthpiece or something like that. In Eusebius's history, there are actually a couple different versions of that. One of them has, has it that as Peter was getting close to his, his death, uh, John... Uh, decided John Mark decided that he, he maybe he better write this stuff down before Peter's testimony was lost. And so with Peter's approval, Mark writes the Gospel of Mark. Another version of the story has it that it happened after Peter died, that after Peter died, other folks pressed Mark to write this stuff down so that it wouldn't be lost. So in the tradition, whether before or after Peter's death, Mark is the, the conveyor of Peter's gospel. I think that fits in some ways because Mark is the gospel that's most honest about Peter's nature. The others clean him up a little bit, but not Mark. Uh, gospel scholarship over the years the pro has tended to see the process a little differently, that at first nobody wrote anything down because those early Christians thought the end was coming really soon. So there isn't time to write, we've got to get the message out. And so by word of mouth, by oral tradition, the stories are told, the words of Jesus are repeated in teaching and in preaching and proclamation over and over again and passed from one person to another, from one community to another for a generation or so. And then it's the same crisis of, of, uh, of mortality that really may occasion the writing of these things, that as the eyewitnesses start to die out, people figure out, figure, we better get this stuff written down. And so someone writes and puts, collects the things together and writes the first one. Mark 
whoever it is. We'll just keep, we'll just call him Mark. We don't know if it's Mark or not, but we'll call him that. Mark appears to be the one who actually invents the genre of a gospel, the one who writes the first gospel. And since Mark is writing the first gospel, there aren't any others around yet. I'm not going to be using Matthew or Luke or John to help shine light on what Mark is teaching us because those didn't exist yet. Those later gospels made use of Mark um, and other material as well. Well, either way, I happen to think actually that the traditional view of who, who Mark may have been and, this, and the um, scholarly view of the growth of Christian tradition fit together pretty well. And I think they actually agree at this point of the crisis of the first generation dying off may be the occasion for writing these things down for the first time. So now I'd like you to imagine that you are Mark. You've been traveling with Peter. You've been hearing the stories of Jesus over and over again, but Peter has never sat down and told the whole story of Jesus. He's used this story when he preaches this time, or this story when he teaches that one. And you've heard them several times, and you've got them in your heart and in your memory. So you've got the stories, but you don't know necessarily what order they go in, if you're going to put them in any particular order. So if you, had, if you were going to tell the story... What order would you tell it in? Well, some things would be obvious. You'd put the baptism at the beginning, the baptism of Jesus. You'd put his uh, Last Supper and his those crucial Jerusalem scenes and the crucifixion and the resurrection. Those obviously go at the end. But where does everything else go? How do you arrange it? How do you put it together? Well, another piece of that question is, what is it that you're writing are you writing a biography, the life of Jesus? Apparently not. These don't seem these gospels appear not to be biographies. Otherwise, why would you skip the first 30 years or so of Jesus' life, as Mark does? Mark starts with Jesus ready for his ministry. You miss that whole part of his life. He's not telling a biography. Mark is proclaiming a message. And that's a crucial piece to take a look at here, that Mark is proclaiming a message. His gospel is really honed and crafted and shaped in a particular way to tell a particular message. And it's not going to be the same message as Matthew will proclaim, or Luke will proclaim, or John will proclaim. They're doing similar things, but each of them has a different purpose for a different community in a different time. So, you're Mark, you've heard the stories, you don't necessarily know what order they go in, and you've got a message that you want to get across. That message, by the way, is going to be the reign of the gathering God, and we'll talk more about that. How will you do it? Here's how Mark does it. First of all, Mark arranges stories thematically. That becomes really clear in chapter 1 and 2 and into the beginning of 3. Mark gives us a collection of stories of conflict from the middle of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 3. Conflict after conflict after conflict after conflict. So a group of conflict stories. We're going to be looking today at what those are. What, kind, what kinds of conflict are we talking about? Later on, Mark will have a collection of Jesus' parables in one chapter. 
Beyond that, he's going to have a collection of story, travel stories of Jesus, traveling across the sea and back into other countries. Um, from the middle of chapter 8, he's going to have a series of stories focusing on what we'll call the way of the cross, where he's teaching discipleship and what the way of the cross is. They're collected in one place. So that's part of Mark's way of doing it. He's going to group things by theme, different kinds of one theme gathered together in one chunk together. And that's a helpful piece. We'll see those themes cohering together. Along with grouping by theme, Mark also groups by geography. It's now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going back and forth between Galilee and, and Jerusalem several times, not in Mark. In Mark, Mark begins with, uh, with the wilderness for the first 13 verses. Mark, is, Mark focuses on what happens in the wilderness, and that has a particular meaning. We're going to see this, that, geogra that the geography in Mark is both literal and meaningful, thematic. So the beginning is, the first 13 verses are in the wilderness. From verse 14 on, we're in Galilee, in and around Galilee, and especially Capernaum. Caper Galilee doesn't have a special meaning all by itself automatically, but it's going to come to have a significance and a theme. So that at the end of Mark's gospel, when, when the disciples are sent back to Galilee to meet Jesus, that's going to mean something. We'll have to find what, what that is. After that, from the end of chapter 4 on for the next four chapters, Jesus will be crossing the sea constantly, the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee turns out to be a major boundary between us and them, Jews and Gentiles, clean and unclean. And for Jesus to be crossing that boundary over and over is a theme running through that section. And from the end of chapter 8 through chapter 10, Jesus will be moving from Galilee southward to Jerusalem to the cross. He's on his way to the cross. And as he goes that through those chapters, he's telling us about the cross, that he's going to die and rise again. And he'll be teaching us the way of the cross. And so Mark's geography this time is the road, the way that we're traveling to the cross. And the theme is the way of the cross. From chapter 11 on, Jesus reaches Jerusalem, and all the rest of the events then take place in and around Jerusalem. Chapters 11, 12, and 13, focusing around the temple especially. And then the last chapters, of course, Jesus' death and resurrection. So Mark is working his gospel geographically and thematically at the same time. And that's going to carry meaning for us. It's going to help us hear his sermon, his message. Another piece of how Mark writes, and this is true of every writing, is that when, when, you, when someone writes something, they have a certain expectation about what the hearers know and understand from the beginning. If you're doing narrative analysis, narrative critics will call this the implied audience. Who... We don't know who Mark is writing for. We can't name the community or know, know much about them. But the clues that are within the text tell us something about who Mark is writing for and what he expects his hearers to know and understand. Let me give you an example. The, the first eight verses of Mark 
uh, our focus on the proclamation of John the Baptist. The book begins the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, and then there's a quotation. Well, there's an expectation in there that you as a reader know who the prophet Isaiah is and that have some expectations about that. Now, in point of fact, the quotation that he gives is, is part from Isaiah and partly from Malachi. It's a blend of two different prophets. And Mark might even expect you to catch that because the prophet Malachi has some crucial stuff in him that um, points forward to who Jesus is. Then, verse 4, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness. You're expected to know something about wilderness, how wilderness for the people of God in the Old Testament was a place of trial and honing and shaping and expectation. It's the place that salvation comes out of. And so to anchor the beginning of the story in the wilderness already carries meaning. That there's something new being prepared here and being ready to be unleashed for, for salvation for the world. You get a little bit more then about John's activity. And then Mark tell, takes the time to tell you what John was wearing. Verse 6, Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Who cares what John wore and what he ate? What does that have to do with anything? Well, in point of fact, I don't really know what the food is all about. But the clothing, that he was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, folks who are immersed in that story, as John's original Mark's original audience would have been, would hear that and say, Oh! He's wearing Elijah clothes. That's how the prophet Isaiah is described in the Old Testament as dressed. Camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. That's a clue, and Mark is building up your ex the expectations and expecting you as a hearer to know, oh, we've got the prophecy, we've got the Elijah prophecy, we've got Elijah clothing, we've got... And so the expectations of this new act of God are being built up through those hints. We don't come pre-programmed knowing all those hints. We have to do some sleuthing and some digging to figure them out. Uh, but along the way, as we deal with some of the themes in Mark, we'll be thinking back to what, what did Mark's hearers know? What were they expected to know in order to make sense of the story? And so what do we need to catch up on to hear the same things that they heard? Now, another word about these collections of stories in Mark. They are not just beads on a string, strung in order. Oh, here, I'll just slip a whole bunch of uh, conflict stories together. They might feel a little bit like that, but they begin to build as you read, read them along. They, they interpret each other, and they build up a bigger and bigger picture as you read more of those stories together. That's going to be part of our task this first Sunday as we gather together, is to read these conflict stories and begin to see the bigger picture. What's going on here? What are they all about? So that's a piece of that. That's, it's the whole picture and not only the individual stories that Mark is trying to show us. Sometimes, in the middle of, of one of those sequences, Mark will have a story where Jesus tells us what's going on. 
It's kind of a clue piece. And we'll get one of those in this first sequence. In Mark 2, 18 through 22, the challenge in this particular one is, Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting like everybody else is doing right now? Well, Jesus first responds by what fa what's the nature of fasting and who he is and what time it is. There's some crucial stuff there. And then he adds two little parables. You don't sew a new patch onto an old garment or else it's going to pull apart. You don't pour new wine into old wineskins or the wine as it expands will burst those skins and it will all be lost. In those little parables, Jesus is telling us what the whole first section of conflict stories is about. Well, watch for those. I'm just wanting to, you to see some of the structures that Mark likes to use to convey the meaning of a section. Let me add one last piece of how, of how Mark writes. And it's one of my favorites. I call them, and some others do too, Markan sandwiches. In literary theory, they have more exalted names like inclusio or envelope structure, or there are a number of different ways to talk about it. The basic pattern of a Markan sandwich is that you've got one story starting, and then it gets interrupted by another story, and then after that, the first story finishes. The first time I came across one of these, was had to do with the, Jesus cursing the fig tree. Do you remember that story? In Mark, it's Mark 11, 12 through 25. In Mark 11, Jesus first is on, he and his disciples are on his way from Bethany to Jerusalem, and they pass this fig tree, and Jesus decides he wants to, have, wants to eat a fig. Well, he knows full well it's not even the season for figs, but he goes up and checks the tree, and there's no fruit on it, and so Jesus effectively curses the tree. He says, may no, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. That doesn't seem very nice. What does Jesus have against some poor fool tree that doesn't even supposed to be having figs at this time of year? Well, they go on to Jerusalem, and then what happens in Jerusalem is what we've usually called the cleansing of the temple. And then the next day, as they're on their way into town again, they come to the same tree and the disciples see it's been withered to the roots and they're shocked. And so now you get the end of that story and Jesus has some teaching about that situation. Well, that, that story always really bugged me until suddenly it dawned on me that by telling one story around the other, by having the cleansing of the temple be the meat of the sandwich and the two halves of the fig tree story being the bread of the sandwich, Mark is telling us that these two stories interpret each other. They fit together. They belong together. Which now tells me that the cleansing of the temple isn't just a cleansing of the temple. It's a cursing of the temple for, it, for being fruitless. It's a powerful structure. We'll take a look at that a whole lot more when we get to that place. Well, that's just the, the best known of Mark's envelope structures or sandwiches. Mark uses this often and seems to love it, and I enjoy it as well. In what we're looking at today, we don't get a, a real full envelope story or sandwich, but we do get one story that does have that, a, a bit of that structure to it. 
This is Mark 1, 21 through 28. It's the first of the conflict series. Jesus goes to the synagogue in Capernaum on the Sabbath, and he teaches there. And that's the story where this man with an unclean spirit bursts out, and they have a conflict there, and Jesus casts out the unclean spirit. Mark begins with um, Jesus teaching. This is verses 21 and 22. He teaches, and they're shocked at his teaching because he teaches as one who has authority, not like their scribes teach. Then verse 23, the man with the unclean spirit bursts onto the scene, and then Jesus takes care of that. In the last two verses, 27 and 28, they're all amazed again, and they keep on asking, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So you've got the story of Jesus' teaching, and amazement around that, as the envelope around the story of the unclean spirit, and the shock around that situation. And the two stories, as we're going to see, belong together. They interpret each other. So there you've got how Mark writes. He Mark, He's writing one message throughout this whole gospel. It's a consistent message that he wants us to hear. He does it with geography. He does it with thematic grouping. He does it with expectations that he has for his hearers. He does it with, uh, in these collections, there will also be an interpretive passage in the middle. And he loves to do these sandwich structures. We'll see them a whole lot more as we go. That's the main thing I wanted to do with you in this podcast, was to spend time on Mark and how he writes, and just get your juices going and your, your eyes open to what we're going to see. The other piece I'll deal with a whole lot more quickly, and that's the narrative shape of Mark 1, 1 through 3, 6. It begins, as I mentioned, with three episodes in the wilderness, and the wilderness being this place of shaping and testing and forming for God's people, and out of it comes salvation. And so the meaning of wilderness opens up this section with John the Baptist, with Jesus' baptism, and with his, te his temptation in the wilderness. Starting in verse 14, we move into Jesus' ministry around Galilee, and especially in Galilee and focusing around the town of Capernaum. It begins with a thematic opening where Jesus first pro proclaims his message and then begins to gather some disciples. So verses 14 and 15 are his, Jesus' focal proclamation. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Turn around and believe this good news. There's his message. We'll watch it play out for the whole gospel. And then Jesus calls four fishermen as disciples. I used to hate this story because I, when I thought about fishing, I thought about my dad's trout fishing in the streams of California and other places, and I had even gotten hooked by, a, by one of those hooks once, and I didn't like the idea of being hooked by a fish hook. That's not the kind of fishing, and the kind of fishing that they're doing is important. It's sane fishing. It's net fishing, where they 
they throw out this huge seine net to encompass a whole shoal of fish and gather them in. It's fishing by gathering. I'm going to make you fishers of people by gathering them in. That's the picture. And so this combination of the proclamation of the kingdom of God, the reign of God, and um, the call to gather them in, to gather people in. This is the reign of the gathering God. From that point, then, is this first cycle of conflict stories from 121 to chapter 3, verse 6. The stories are the unclean spirit in the synagogue, the healings on the Sabbath, Jesus' decision to go around to other towns, his cleansing of a leper, his forgiving a paralyzed man, Jesus eating with untouchables, with uh, social garbage, Jesus not fasting, and then two final stories about his work on the Sabbath, the last one finally being a culmination one that has the has people so incensed against him that they're ready to find a way to kill him. That's the series. The first level that I, that I saw in that as I began to read Mark years ago was, well, you got a whole series of conflict stories, Jesus and the religious leaders. The more you look at that and you ask, what's the nature of the conflict? Well, in almost every story, there's some kind of line that Jesus is stepping across some kind of boundary that Jesus is breaking. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's the Torah. Sometimes it's, it's law, lines of law. Sometimes it's lines of priestly authority or other kinds of, of authorities, position. Some, the, one, one of the lines is blasphemy, the crucial line between God and humans when Jesus does something that only God's supposed to do, namely forgive sin. Uh, sometimes it's social customs and mores, like who do you eat with and who don't you eat with. Sometimes it's custom and religious tradition, like fasting. Uh, so one line after another, all kinds of different lines. Why does Jesus break these lines? Why does he step over them or ignore them? That's the next level. And it seems that on, on almost every instance across that line, there's somebody who is crushed by that line, someone who's excluded by that line, someone who is in need of, of help. And so Jesus crosses that line for the sake of the person on the other side of the line. Well, who's upset by that? It's pretty clear it's the religious leaders, and we'll see more about those as we gather together on Sunday. Who are these leaders and why are they upset? What's their nature of their upsetness? I always kind of grew up assuming they were upset because they were they were dedicated to their religion and their practice of faith as they understood it, and Jesus seemed to be violating that. I think that's true. But now I think we need to ask another question, and that's, do they have something at stake? Is there something in the keeping of those lines that they get something out of? Are they losing something if Jesus crosses the line or erases the line? Those are the kind of questions that we're going to be asking together. And as you, I invite you to read through those passages between now and Sunday and get your own thinking going and see what you might want to add to the picture.
So at the end of that series, we're going to have a, a, our first major picture of the reign of the gathering God and the keepers of the kingdom that's already there who have something at stake. Thank you for this time. I'll see you on Sunday. <laughs>